Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health webcast, Response versus Reaction, Conditioning the Human Mind to Deal with Risk, sponsored by DuPont Sustainable Solutions. My name is Barry Botino, and I'm an associate editor with Safety and Health magazine. I'll be your moderator for today's session. Thanks for joining us. In a few minutes, we'll start the presentation, but first, I want to go over some preliminary items. The views of today's speakers and organizations are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the council or the magazine endorses those items. After today's presentation, we'll conduct a question and answer session with our speaker. To ask a question, simply type it in the text box in the lower left-hand corner of your screen and click the button for Submit Question. Feel free to ask your question at any time during the presentation. You don't have to wait for the question and answer session to begin to ask your question. We'll try to get to as many questions as possible today, but because of the large number of attendees, we might not get to every question. However, any unanswered questions today will be forwarded along to our speaker. For basic troubleshooting information, click the Help button located on your screen. At the end of the webcast, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey. I'll let you know more about that later. This webcast will be archived. You can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, visit our website at safetyandhealthmagazine.com slash events. With that, Let's introduce today's speaker. Our speaker today is Padmakshi O'Neill. Padmakshi is a product manager for DuPont Sustainable Solutions, a company she joined in 2013. She manages the design, development, and delivery of sound and effective workplace learning solutions that combine the science of instruction with the art of design and production. Her extensive professional experience includes work in instructional design, organizational development, and change facilitation. Again, we thank you all for tuning in to this presentation today. And Padmakshi, when you're ready, go ahead and take it away. Thank you, Barry. Thank you for the introduction. And good afternoon. Thank you, all of you, for being here. Over the past few years, I have worked and conducted research in the areas of human performance improvement human factors, personal risk factors, and more importantly, how we human beings take to, tend to make our decisions. And today, we're going to talk about how all that research applies to the area of risk. It all comes down to choice. Risk is all around us. We are aware of that. Some risks we avoid. Others, we embrace. Not all of us might be comfortable getting onto this roller coaster that this woman seems to be enjoying. Not all of us are comfortable using power tools. I certainly am not. Others feel that they can be more productive working without their PPE. Have you heard that before? Or using their cell phones while driving. I cannot tell you how many people I see on the roads on my drive to work or drive home 
that are clutching to their cell phone with dear life and then using their free hand to maneuver their car. So it is about choices. It is about the expected consequences of those choices. And it is about our feelings and our emotions associated with those choices. Did you notice that I used the words feel comfortable, feel productive in the examples earlier? Free will is often associated with positive emotions. Rules and regulations tend to be accepted, sometimes grudgingly, but looked upon as forced choices and often associated with negative feelings and emotions. Let me ask you this. Have you ever had to enforce rules about screen time with your kids? How did that go? My sister got into constant fights with her 11-year-old when it came to sticking to screen time. One day she decides that she's going to let him stay up as long as he wanted playing a video game on a school night. Now, you have to understand, my sister is a child psychologist. She decided she was going to do this experiment. Well, the next day, he comes home from school, plops his stuff down, and says, Mom, I've decided that I'm going to go to bed early and stick to my screen time. I could not stay awake at school today. And guess what? He stuck to his screen time after that. But things don't tend to work out this easily in the workplace, though, do they? We tell people about things they should do, things they shouldn't do. And I personally have experienced this. I decide to change the way I do a particular thing. And maybe I'm successful for a little bit. But then I find myself falling back into old patterns. Part of the problem lies in how we humans make decisions. We all like to think that we make every decision after carefully analyzing research, information, data. But the fact is that we rely heavily on our biases, on our past experiences dealing with similar situations, on numerous noise variables, and the associated feelings and emotions. Most of us, are extremely busy. We tend to go through our days caught up in a nonstop tsunami of thoughts, feelings, activities, emotions. We can rarely do one thing at a time anymore. Most of us have become accustomed to and comfortable juggling various mental and physical activities. It's scary sometimes if you sit back and think about it. And our experiences, things that we have done, similar things that we have done in the past, the biases that have formed over a period of time, different variables that are involved in our decision-making, all of these have the potential to impact how we feel about certain things and impact the decisions we make. Understanding this becomes especially critical when we are considering any kind of risk. Do any of you do something a certain way because 
years ago, your dad or your granddad told you to do it in that particular way? Growing up in India, I often pushed back on my mom about things she would forbid me from doing or where she would correct me when I was in the middle of doing something, some chore mostly, and tell me not to do it at a certain time. Don't cut your fingernails at night. Don't sweep the floors. It's evening. This is not the right time to do it. When asked why, she would say, well, that's what my mom told me. That's what she did, and that's what her mom before her told her to. Through the ages, the experiential system has supported human survival. Now, what does that mean? Long before we had probability theory, risk analysis, decision analysis, there was intuition, gut instinct, and even the sixth sense telling people what was safe, what was unsafe. Approach this animal. You might be able to kill it. Avoid drinking this water. Humans experienced the world around them and made their decisions based on their own experiences and those about which they had heard. In the example I shared with you, rural India had no electricity when my grandma was growing up. It got really dark in the evenings. If, if somebody cut their fingernails in the evening, they might not have been able to clear them all out and throw them away. If you swept the floors in the dark, you likely didn't see everything that was littering before. So it made sense for these rules to be in place at that time. In the cities, years later, not so much. As the world around us became more complex and people gained more control over their surrounding environment, the use of analytical tools to boost thinking became more and more predominant. So much so that over the years, analytical thinking has come to be synonymous with rationality and experiential thinking has come to be synonymous with irrationality. The fact is that there are strong elements of rationality in both these systems. I'll give you another example. I was facilitating a personal risk awareness workshop recently, and one of the exercises we did as part of the workshop was to assess the level of risk in a particular activity. I showed this image on the screen, and I asked the participants to assess the risk level in smoking. Different groups got together, they discussed what they thought the risk level was, but there was this one group that was still heavily involved in a discussion. Two individuals in particular had two completely different perceptions of the risk involved in smoking. One person, let's call him Al, said that the activity was 100% risky. The other individual, let's call him Ricky, insisted that the activity was only about 
30% risky. So I asked them to share why they had each score the way they did. Al responded with tons of statistics on the harmful effects of smoking. Ricky agreed with those statistics, but said each individual is different and experiences different effects of smoking. After much back and forth, and by this time, the entire class was involved in this discussion and trying to form groups, one supporting Al and the other supporting Ricky. Not something you want happening when you're on a tight timeline to complete a workshop, but that's a different story. Anyway, after much back and forth, I, Al finally said, my dad was a smoker. He died of lung cancer when he was about 50. I have personally experienced the horrors of smoking, and I will never see it as anything less than 100% risky. Ricky responded, I'm sorry to share that. My dad is also a smoker. He has smoked about a pack a day for 55 years. He is 75 and in relatively good health. Researchers recognize that the experiential and analytical modes of thinking are continually active. What does this mean? When faced with a certain task, the feelings and emotions that become dominant in the decision-making process depend on three things, the individual, the task, and the interaction between the two. Some tasks are perceived to be harder, others easier. And it depends on how we are able to evaluate the information related to those tasks. For example, if we've repeated a task over and over again, it might seem easier, it might feel positive, and therefore we perceive it as less risky. Let's reflect on a time when we had to learn a new skill, driving a car or handling a new piece of machinery, for example. When you were first introduced to the task, what did you do? Did you slow down and pay a lot more attention to what you were doing? I guess we are all consciously aware that we are doing something unfamiliar, and that causes us a little bit of a pause. Do you remember the first time that you sat in the driver's seat to drive? The fear, the anticipation, the exhilaration that you experienced. Well, as you progressed on your journey of learning how to drive, I'm sure you had to learn the different steps and sub-steps that were involved in driving. You likely knew that you had to get your driver's permit. You were told that you had to learn to drive in different environments and gain different experiences, and of course, make up your practice hours. What happened the first time you had to drive in rain or in the snow? 
I have a ton of horror stories about that. Again, not being from here, having to drive in the snow for the first time seemed like fun, but after I had done it the first time, not so much. So what happened when you had to do it for the first time? Did you adjust your speed because now you were driving on a different road condition? As time passed, you probably not only learned how to drive, but you became very good at it. You knew how to drive in different conditions, on different terrain, and you understood the hazards and potential pitfalls that were present when you were driving. Over time, you became so skilled that at times you no longer even had to think about what you were doing. For example, do you remember putting on the seatbelt this morning? Or have you become so habituated that as soon as you get into the car, you put it on, that you don't even think about it? While this level of skill can be beneficial in many ways, it also comes with a heavy price. Most of us can relate to that unnerving experience of arriving at our destination and not having any conscious recollection of the drive itself. We become adept at subconsciously making any necessary decision and any adjustment to complete the given task, in this case, driving. An essential part of risk assessment is to determine the severity of possible adverse consequences and the likelihood of the occurrence of each such consequence. People tend to rely on a limited number of experiential principles to simplify the complex tasks of assessing probabilities. If I stand on a swivel chair to change out this light bulb, the chances of me falling and hurting myself are more or higher than if I stand on a dining chair, something like that. On the job, employees often fall back on what they have experienced, what they know, or something that they may have not experienced to determine the likelihood of something bad happening. Have you ever expressed concern to someone over something they were doing, over their safety, only to have them say, oh, that's not going to happen to me. I've done this many, many times before, and nothing bad has ever happened. Well, then you know what I'm talking about. Early psychometric studies of risk perception show that feelings of dread, feelings of fear, were the major determiner of public perception of, and the acceptance and rejection of risks. As people are able to conquer their feelings of dread, they start perceiving hazards and risks differently. Let's go back to the driving example for a minute. As we overcame our fear of driving, I'm talking about new drivers primarily, 
as we overcame our fear of driving, or in my case, of merging, especially on the interstate, our perception of the risks involved in driving changed. And they kept changing till we got to the point where we didn't even have to think about some of the major steps involved in driving. As that happened, we got more comfortable with driving and started looking at it as less risky than how we used to look at it before. I'm sure you've heard people say, oh, that risk was totally worth it. We humans often weigh the risks in our actions against the reward that we perceive we will receive by taking those risks. While we like to think that as rewards increase, the risk decreases, that is not the case. Rewards and risks have a direct correlation. When faced with risky situations, especially at work, we have the perception that our organization's safety practices will protect us from the hazards around us. I'm sure all of you have outstanding safety systems in place to protect your employees. That expectation, though, that these safety practices, these safety systems can protect us, that expectation to lift the bags in their arms, walk across with the heavy bags, and fling them onto the trucks, thus leading to that spate of back injuries. Many of us are not consciously aware of the things that we do, and some behaviors get delegated to the automatic or semi-automatic way of operating. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. Typically, we only make decisions consciously when those decisions are interpreted as involving significant consequences, either good or bad, life-changing decisions, so to say. In this case, these workers had weighed the risk and the reward. They decided that they would rather get the work done faster and made a decision to not use the lifts. Now, let's be fair. Some of them may have wanted to keep using the lifts, but agreed to go along because they did not want to appear weak. Others may have done it because they observed somebody else do it that way and figured that was a better way to do that. There are multiple aspects to be considered, right? But our choice, whether it is a conscious choice or a subconscious choice, our choice to either accept or reject risk happens in one of two ways. Risk reaction or risk response. Risk reaction is the fast, instinctive, an automatic decision to either accept or reject the risk. Risk response, on the other hand, is our reasoned, logical, and deliberate decision 
to accepting or rejecting the risk. And that brings us to our first opportunity to connect with today's audience. We'll give everyone about a minute to choose one of our two possible answers to today's first poll question. As the poll appears on your screen, take a moment to answer the following. Which one do you use most? A, risk reaction, or B, risk response? We'll give you all about 10 more seconds to submit your answers for this poll. And we're getting some great responses so far, so thank you for all of your votes. And now let's go ahead and close out our poll and take a look at our results. And as you see there, risk reaction is the item that has won out today, 61% to 39% for risk response. Padmakshi, are you surprised at all by the results that we're seeing from our attendees today? I am, but I have to say that the attendees are honest, and I like that. For those of us that are thinking that we look at safety, risk, decision-making in a different way, we might be able to say that, you know, I try my best to respond to risk, and I'm sure that you are doing it. As for me, I've been working and researching in this area for a while now, and I still find myself reacting from time to time. The difference is that now I catch myself, whereas in the past, I was unaware of what I was doing. Having workers who know the intricacies of their jobs so well that they don't need to consciously labor over how do I do this, what are the next steps, what am I supposed to do if something unexpected happens, that sounds like the embodiment of what we want our workforces to achieve in terms of skills. But nothing can be further from the truth. What we need are workers who are able to leverage the experiential component to accurately analyze and respond to risk. It has long been believed that if individuals are motivated enough or provided enough incentive to be safe, then they will be safe, right? Motivation alone, though, is not sufficient to lead to lasting change. I might be motivated to exercise every morning, and that motivation lasts, say, about a week. And then something happens, and it's difficult for me to get back into that pattern of exercising. So motivation alone is not sufficient to lead to lasting change. It's the same with incentives. But we also have to remember that being safe doesn't necessarily mean being free of risk. So we have to make that essential shift in our thought processes. To improve safety performance, organizations must understand how employees make decisions and then teach them how to make better decisions to lower their risk. Kurt Lewin, considered to be the grandfather of applied behavioral science, suggests in his force field analysis model that human behavior or individual human behavior 
is a function of personal factors and the impact of the social environment. Thomas Gilbert's behavior engineering model is built on the principle that all instrumental human behavior has two aspects of equal importance. A person with a repertoire of behavior and the supporting environment. Both these models suggest that when training individuals, especially in the areas of safety and risk, we need to focus beyond just human behavior. Behavior, after all, is an outcome of our decisions, whether conscious or subconscious, and decisions can be influenced by different perspectives. Both these models explain why training-oriented change efforts that are aimed solely at individuals often have a higher failure rate. An organization's safety performance is the cumulative sum of the individual safety performance of all employees. So to improve an organization's safety performance, of course, what we have to do is improve the safety performance of each employee. To improve individual safety performance, we need our employees to learn a few different things. How to rapidly respond to risk, even when they are tempted to react, how to account for factors that impact decision-making. So this is the bias, personal experience, past experience, noise, feelings, emotions, everything that we've talked about so far. So they have to learn to account for these factors. They, of course, have to understand the value for reducing risk. In the case of my nephew's example, till he saw the value in what my sister was telling him, he was not ready or willing to make that change. But the moment he realized, if I don't get enough sleep at night because I'm playing this game, I'm going to have a hard day at school the next day. Understanding the value for reducing risk and leveraging the experiential, everything that we have learned from our past experiences, leveraging that to analyze the situation so we are able to respond to this. But then how do we do this without creating training efforts that are aimed at individuals? It comes down to conditioning the human mind. There is extensive research out there regarding how habits are formed. If you have not read The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg, I recommend that you do so. Duhigg talks about how companies exploit habit cues and rewards to try to sway customers to buy a particular product. Think about applying the same approach here as we think about the habit of taking risks. Habits, scientists say, emerge because the brain is constantly looking for ways to save effort. Left to its own devices, the brain will try to make almost every routine 
into a habit. It's because